Well, hello, everyone. It's uh, Dan Bossy with another episode of Old Folks Trade Grain. And today it's Old Men Trade Grain. I've got with my with me our good friend, Neil Townsend at FarmLink in uh, Winnipeg, Canada. Neil's been with us uh, at Ag Resource for, as, a, as a, how should I say it, as a good friend for many, many months and years. And we're delighted to have him on the podcast today. But, you know, thinking a little bit about the markets uh, in the last week or so, Boy, has the volatility been rocketing both up and down. So as you look at Chicago, big rallies, of course, uh, following crop condition numbers that were surprisingly lower than expected on Wednesday. Uh, the markets rallied sharply. And then, of course, we added rain to the forecast on Friday and we're down sharply. And this is kind of what the markets are going to do or look like, I'm fearing, probably into the end of uh, middle or end of July. I say that because in the week ahead, we've got crop condition numbers coming out again. And then we've got those big USDA stocks and seedings report, which are always likely to cause sharp rallies or declines, depending upon what NAS and the USDA tells us. With that, I'd like to welcome our good friend, Neil Townsend, to the show. Uh, Neil, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Dan. It's uh, only about 22 degrees, about 72 degrees Fahrenheit up here in Winnipeg. We've had some hot weather. I sat through a minor league baseball game at about 35 which is about 95 degrees Celsius, which is about, you know, 25 degrees above normal. And, you know, even at the uh, the nighttime, the whole game uh, over at about 930, it was still uh, around about 30 degrees uh, or about 90 degrees. So pretty hot. Yeah, I mean, when you think about 95 degrees Fahrenheit for Winnipeg, uh, that seems very unusual for, mo for me. And uh, um, again, it's been, it's been that kind of growing season when you look back at it. You know, Canada has persistently been above normal in terms of temperatures. Um, and I, I don't know, Neil, if it changes, but I imagine the crops are coming along pretty quickly up uh, in your neck of the woods. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm in the Red River Valley and we've had, you know, well above normal temperatures for about a month, month and a half. And, uh, you know, crops are progressing very, very fast. And, you know, uh, some farmers have said it's sort of like uncharted territory. They're not used to them being you know, this advanced at this time, there's been a big need for rain. We did get some thunder shower clusters coming through here, but, you know, the forecast remains sort of mixed and and noted that, you know, a slightly above or, or more than slightly above temperatures are expected to persist well into July. Neil, uh, before we get into a dive of Canadian grain markets and what you think of the world, you know, I, I just want to share with the audience a little bit about your background. I've always seen you as one of the best uh, wheat and grain analysts in the world. Uh, when I first met you, you were at the Canadian Wheat Board as the principal wheat analyst. Uh, then you moved to FarmLink. But give me a little bio, or, uh, if you will, uh, where you started and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I've been lucky enough in my um, life to have uh, some very good mentors, one of which I would say is you, Dan. I mean, since I've met you, you've been, you know, provided me with a lot of great insight and always been super generous and a great gentleman and somebody that I really uh, appreciate knowing and a true professional in this field. So thank you for that. But I started, I actually, my first degree was in, uh, you know, I was in law school and the final um, you know, year of law school, I, I went over to the agricultural economics department because I was doing a project on bringing uh, agriculture into the GATT, the precursor of the WTO. And, you know, we worked on this project together with uh, Dr. Kraft at the University of Manitoba here. 
And one of the last things he said to me is he said, oh, you know, like uh, a lot of things are happening in the world of agriculture is just at the dawn of NAFTA. And of course, you know, this WTO. And he said, like, having a legal background in the world of agricultural trade would be really useful. And that sort of stuck in my mind. I worked in the legal field for a little while, and then I decided to come back and do a master's in agricultural uh, economics. And, uh, you know, I, I found out one thing very quickly that I thought a lot more like an economist than a lawyer for good or, you know, for better or worse. And, uh, you know, I haven't really spent that much time working on sort of trade deals or anything like that. I've just done more sort of fundamental analysis. From there, I, you know, I, I uh, spent a bit of time in Thailand working at a university there for three years. And then I came back and started my career at the Canadian Wheat Board. And along the way, I was lucky enough to have a, a few other mentors who sort of guided me. I've done a lot of travel on behalf of the, uh, you know, the Canadian Wheat Board and, you know, been to China many times, been to Ukraine many times, been to Russia quite a few times, Australia many times. So I've seen a lot of the, you know, the agricultural world and observed. And along the way, I've met a lot of great people and made a lot of great collaborations happening, including with yourself and egg resource. And, uh, you know, I've tried to open my ears and listen to what other people say. And I call it ground intelligence quite often, where, you know, the easiest way to go from point one to point two is not to sit and think about it in Winnipeg, but to phone a person who's right there and get their viewpoint on it. Well, it's that combination, Neil, of uh, economic analysis and ground truth, as I call it, that always gives you the right or tries to give you the right answer. And I I think uh, you have you have done that very, very aptly as you try to help farmers in Canada. Uh, and then lately, you're now working at FarmLink, which I guess is an agricultural advisory firm for farmers. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, it sort of morphed from FarmLink was the original company that I joined. Since then, we've gone to uh, we've become Grain Fox, which is sort of like a, an app and a portal for, you know, solves, you know, many different uh, needs for farmers. But you know, one of the primary services it provides is sort of the market analytics and, uh, you know, uh, farmers can um, see when we would advise them to sell. Now, in Western Canada, of course, it's not just like wheat, corn and soybeans. I mean, we're dealing with uh, lentils, red lentils, green lentils, yellow peas, green peas, canary seed, durum wheat, canola, flax, you know, a lot of things. So there's a lot of smaller markets for, you know, worldwide customers, but that are very important for Western Canadians. And we try to fill that gap to provide, you know, clear insight, actionable advice for farmers. Uh, and really, that's the only thing I've ever done in my career is write for farmers. Like I worked at Cargill for a while, and my job there was to write a newsletter for farmers. Uh, you know, most of my career at the Wheat Board, I was, uh, you know, in charge of writing the communications of the, about the markets to farmers. And uh, now I've done that at FarmLink for about, uh, you know, coming up on seven full years. And I know that FarmLink has uh, dived into the AI aspect of things, which I think is very interesting for farmers and for others. In, in, in a short uh, couple of minutes, tell me how the AI is working. Yeah, I mean, the problem that we're trying to solve is not, you know, like writ large. We're not trying to solve like, hey, let's figure out, you know, what uh, the corn futures are going to do in the next you know, minute. Like there's there's people with humongously deep pockets who would try to do that, like Gabalon or Citadel or, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs or something like that. No, the problem we're trying to solve is. A, a lot of these smaller um, crops that nobody's really investigated, and B, to sort of bespoke the 
um, you know, the recommendation for the particular farmer. So the way that it works is like, you know, the human analyst might make a recommendation of selling a certain percentage, and then the AI would sort of extrapolate that to a particular geography and to a particular risk profile for the farmer and to, you know, other things such as cash needs, storage needs, all those kinds of things to just so that, you know, what the farmer ends up with is a is a personalized recommendation for themselves. Well, that's pretty exciting. Breaking the risk down and the opportunity for the farmer individually through AI. I, I, I commend. I think that's a uh, a wonderful, wonderful thought process to help uh, Canadian and farmers worldwide to make more money. Um, yeah, Neil, as as you look at the markets here today, and and thank you for the the background of, of yourself, because uh, whenever I do a conference, whether it's Switzerland or anywhere else, I try to look for people that are really well-grounded in analysis. And I, I can't think of anyone better than yourself. And when you think about that, I mean, as you look at the world wheat market, uh, what, what goes through your mind today? Well, first of all, I want to say like, you know, one of the, the things that was a great highlight of my career was the experience with running, uh, you know, as three conferences in North America. And I was participant in a few conferences in Geneva with you. Uh, you know, for I think we called it uh, Cereals North America. Um, and, uh, you know, great success. We had a really good time. And I mean, I, I've been watching with, uh, you know, great excitement, the growth of GrainCom and your conference there in Geneva. And I just think it's, you know, it's straight shooting, bringing in experts, telling people about the markets. And, you know, I think as we look at the markets today, you know, one of the I don't know if it's an emoji or or what it is, but one of the sort of the gifts, the you know anything you want to call it, it comes to mind is just a bunch of people scratching their head because these markets are extremely uncertain, extremely volatile. We're considering variables that you know maybe in the periphery we discussed twenty years ago, but now they're front and center. And you know our our, our great colleague and great man Noel Fryer, like one of the things he says that really resonates with me is like. To solve these markets, you have to try to get inside of somebody's head like Vladimir Putin. And like, I don't know how he thinks. He doesn't think like I think. And I mean, it is a difficult task to kind of, you know, solve the markets. And that's one of the reasons why bringing people together at GrainCom or in the past at the Serials conferences. I mean, you know, the, the dialogue that we have both, you know, on stage and off stage, just milling about having dinner with people is where a lot of, I think, you know, quote, unquote, problems get solved or people have some solutions. And because even though the markets are highly volatile, extremely uncertain, and in some sense, almost unknowable, you know, the farmers can't operate in that environment. They need to have some guidance. You can't just tell them like, hey, just throw your hands up and just despair about what's going to come next. You have to have a strategic plan and it's a measurement of risk and opportunity, and you have to take some opportunity when it presents, and you have to try to uh, eliminate risk. And as I always say, you know, the goal for farming isn't to maximize in any one year. It's to have a long career and have a generational amount of wealth that you can pass on to the next generation because farming is, you know, it's a 40, 50, 60, 70 year uh, uh, venture. And especially with today's land prices, you got to be prepared for the long haul. Oh, you couldn't be more right on that. It's all about capital and it's all about forward vision and the markets, uh, you know, allowing the good marketers maybe to acquire more land or more equipment to give them an advantage versus their neighbors. And I 
I think that's where FarmLink and yourself and AI and all that comes into play. Um, you know, you talked about Vladimir Putin. I mean, I, I you know, obviously the war has been ongoing uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and I guess what surprised me is that almost every week from last July, at least until the last week or two here, Russian grain prices were down. I mean, they just kept dropping them uh, persistently with their large crop, even though I think you in Canada and maybe others have been exporting record amounts of tonnages. Does, does, does the Russian market continue to direct price going forward, or is it going to be world demand that kind of overtakes the overall view as you think down the road, Neil? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll answer it in two parts. First, I'm going to answer about Russia. Then second, I'm going to make a comment on, de on demand. Russia, I mean, you know, I think one thing that's probably out of alignment is the USDA 22-23 uh, estimate or the supply and ba balance sheet for Russia. Like, clearly, they had a bigger crop than 92 million tons. And that may meant that, you know, unlike most years where there's sort of like a 30 to 35 week presence in the wheat market, they were like almost a 52 week presence in the wheat market. And they continued to sell in relatively big volumes long after you know, they would be expected to be market leaders. And unfortunately, this year, there's sort of been the, the bottom, like, I guess, with Ukraine a little bit more muted, because obviously, they've been invaded by Russia. Ukraine often set the bottom of the market, but it's been Russia that sent it. And they seem to be, you know, in classical fashion, they seem to be more concerned with market share than price. So they've definitely taken the price lower than maybe we thought it would go. Uh, yet they keep and continue to find more wheat. So going forward into 23-24, I mean, the expectation is probably if we call their crop last year 102 or 103 million, about 10 or 11 million times bigger than the USDA. And again, it is a murky thing because, you know, what proportion of that is from occupied territories in Ukraine and uh, some of it might be stolen grain. Like, well, we, we don't know all of it, but like they sure acted like they had that crop. But this year, their estimates are sort of in that 85 to 87 million ton range. Uh, they seem to get a lot of rain at harvest, um, which maybe denigrated some of the quality of the winter wheat. And then there are some dryness concerns or heat concerns about the uh, spring wheat crop. So we'll see what the end result is. But Given their carryout and an 85 million ton crop, they're going to be a significant presence again. I noticed the USDA has them actually exporting more wheat year on year in 23-24. I'm not sure that will happen because they might get a little sticky towards the end in the last sort of few months. But I definitely think that, you know, the value buyers for wheat are going to turn to Russia this year and that will be sort of, you know, hurting the market. And most particularly in sort of the Mediterranean basin and, you know, potentially into Southeast Asia, um, Latin America, those kinds of places, they could play a role in it there. And of course, Africa. The second part is demand. I've, I've heard a lot of people talk, you know, and, and I, there's no denying it, like in the nearby, um, you know, marketplace, demand has been relatively quiet. Um, and but. That's very different than saying that, you know, we're going to see a cut in demand year on year. Since 2000, there's only been three years where global demand for the three major crops, corn, soybeans, and wheat, have actually gone down. And the most significant one was in 22-23, where demand dropped off by 20 million tons. The other two years were, you know, just on the other side of being negative. But in all three years, and you know, obviously 23, 24 hasn't happened, but all, in all three years, the 
the bounce back the next year was above average. So I think, you know, uh, the cut was relatively small, like even the cut of 20 million tons for the demand was less than 1%, but the bounce back is supposed to be about 5%. But in the other two years, it was more like, you know, five and a half and 6%. So we're talking about the years following the drop in consumption. So I, I think that from a farmer standpoint in the US and Canada, you got to take the long approach to demand and just say that, you know, something very, very different, a brand new paradigm would exist if we see two consecutive years of consumption decline uh, in in the in world demand for those three major crops, I just don't see it happening. So if demand is slow right now, and this is you know before the corn and soybean market marketing year has started, and the U.S. wheat marketing year is just early days, if it's quiet now, that probably indicates that at some point there'll be tremendous amounts of catch up buying. Well, I think you're right, Neil, and, and I, I keep thinking about uh, your comment about the mind of Mr. Putin, and Mr. Putin has trained the world wheat buyer to be spot. In other words, as long as Russian prices kept dropping every week, there was no reason to go forward and take forward coverage. So I think part of that decline in global demand is that everybody's just very short bought. And so with that in mind, I, I think your thesis about an increase in demand, maybe after the summer timeframe, makes a lot of sense. Let, let me also ask you in that same vein, then, you know, we've got this country called India, which a guy named Norman Borlaug back in the 1970s gave the Green Revolution by throwing more fertilizer, chemical and water at a crop. And they caused India, which then was a big wheat importer, to become a major producer. My question to you is, are we on an inflection point where maybe uh, India's demand starts to surpass its crop and India becomes an importer again? Yeah, this is uh, probably one of the key questions that somebody just entering the agricultural field, trading, growing, whatever is going to say. Because, you know, what we do know about China is that, you know, the projection forward is a declining population and an aging population. So, you know, we can't count on them to suck up all the surplus, you know, uh, that, that we're growing. Now, that being said, I mean, China's still going to have 1.2, 1.3 billion people for, you know, quite a while here, but it will start to shift. But India is sort of on the opposite end. They're still growing in population. They're still urbanizing. Uh, the farms keep getting, you know, divided and subdivided into smaller and smaller plots. And, you know, there's a lack of efficiency when you get down to that size and mechanization becomes less important. Um, and, you know, they have issues with, you know, groundwater and, you know, the that thing. So, and the other issue with India, and, and this is a, an issue like, in the entirety of agriculture in Russia as well, is that, you know, one of my passions and one of the reasons why I love being involved with you in, in you know, Cereals North America and, uh, you know, helping out on Graincom a little bit is just like, I like transparency. I think that, you know, information should be out there and, and at the hands. But the problem is like some of the key markets and production markets or producers are are doing everything in their power to obscure what reality is. So China, you never know what they're doing and it's getting worse, not better there. They don't want people to look at their crops. Uh, you know, they don't want it, it like it's a, a closely guarded state secret of the size of their, um, and uh, you know, storages and what they have in storage. Is it what the USDA says or vastly different? And another country that tries to play it fast and loose with, uh, you know, information is India. Like, 
you know, they will they have sort of an official number of what was produced and then they have sort of a reality. And those two things don't necessarily match. So when you look at, you know, India over the last two years, we've heard a lot of reports about their crops being adversely affected by weather. But then when the official numbers come out, it looks like a record crop and it, and it adequately covers, uh, um, you know, the consumption. But in the meantime, you see prices starting to go up. You see various government interventions and you see, you know, programs of giving free food to the four or 500 million people who, you know, need a little bit of assistance. And, and so it's very difficult to gauge. But overall, and, and, you know, of course, Russia has become way more opaque as well, which is a major, major export. It's harder to figure out what's going on there. But overall, I see a lot of potential in India. And from a Western Canadian farmer standpoint, I mean, it's not just wheat. It's, uh, you know, uh, the pulses and uh, and other potential crops that uh, special crops that might have a, a home in India. Well, I think for Canada, it's going to be so important what India does, uh, both on the lentils and a lot of other things. But uh, very, very key. Neil, we're, get, we're getting into the end of the program here, but I just want to wrap it up. Give me your thoughts about the Canadian crop as it sits today. We're heading into the month of July, which is a key reproductive time frame. What do you think? I know you said earlier in the program that we're well advanced because of the temperatures. Um, you know, I, I, is this something we need to worry about? Or I, what, what do you think going forward here? It's like a reverse barbell, I'd say that, you know, sort of the the area that looks very promising right now or is sort of the bulk of Saskatchewan. Maybe, you know, 80% of the province looks pretty good with, you know, uh, trend yield possibilities right now. Um, Manitoba is a little bit more varied uh, just because, um, you know, we have the the high heat. And then Alberta is sort of probably a tale of two two places. Like we had the big fires up north in the, in Alberta, but that's actually the area that's gotten better moisture and seems to have a good establishment. And parts of southern and central uh, uh, Alberta are, are struggling. You know, all the crops still have potential. Probably um, the wheat crop is one that, um, you know, people have talked about it sort of having heat at the wrong time. And it, maybe it's it's a little bit more advanced and, you know, it needs it needs more rain now. Uh, and a lot of farmers have told us that they're not ready to kind of make uh, comments or statements yet about, say, canola, uh, which is, you know, the big cash crop in Western Canada. Uh, so. I think it's a wait and see approach. I, I think it's, um, you know, one thing about right now is we're just in this hyper weather market. I mean, weather is everything and obviously centered on Iowa and Illinois and the United States. And, you know, today the market's down that when we're doing the recording and it's because there's a bit of rain in the forecast, as you said, off the lead. But I mean, we've got a long way to go. Uh, and the key weather is ahead of us, both for the United States and Canada. And I'd say like buckle up. The next four to six weeks are going to be super interesting. And the only thing I think that could really break that trend would just be, you know, uh, persistent moderate temperatures with, um, you know, like uh, a couple inches of rain a week down in the key areas of the U.S. and uh, an inch or an inch and a half of rain across Western Canada each and every week for the next four, four to five weeks. Well, Neil, thank you again. We are going to be living off surface water throughout the Canadian prairies in the U.S. Uh, Midwest, and uh, we'll see how that all works out. And we've got other hot spots with heat in China. And, you know, as you say, the next four to eight weeks are going to be absolutely interesting and dynamic. 
And again, I thank you for your time. I consider you to be one of the best analysts in the world and a go-to guy if you're looking for any small grains or other crop information. Thank you, Neil. Thank you very much, Dan. Your words are, are very much appreciated. Well, everyone, it's another episode of Old Folks uh, Talk Grain. Uh, we've really enjoyed our time with Neil Townsend. I look forward to the next podcast, which we may bring back a panel of analysts and discuss the markets. But for now, thank you and watch the skies and uh, be careful heading into the USDA crop reports next week. Good luck with the numbers. Back to you soon.